Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That's where we are. If you're using those blue Bibles, turn to page 943. 943, that'll bring you to our text this morning. We're going to conclude chapter 7. So I think we went pretty fast through 7, actually. Just three, three lessons in chapter 7. This will be the third one. Last week was Mother's Day, so we took a break, did a lesson on Mother's Day. We have 16, 16 chapters in Romans, so maybe another year. I don't know. We'll see. Um, are you there? Romans seven fourteen through 25? Okay. So we're completing this section. We, if you haven't been here or you missed two weeks ago and the week before that, then you missed the two previous messages I gave on Romans, which is 1 through 6 and 7 through 13. So I would encourage you because they're the building blocks for where we are now. And I would encourage you to go back if you haven't heard that and listen to that online if you have questions. But this morning, concerning this specific text, 14 through 25, I want you to know something. There is a, a strong difference of opinion among uh, good and godly Bible teachers, a strong difference of opinion among, among good and bo- uh, godly Bible teachers concerning its meaning, concerning its meaning. Now, I decided, sometimes what pastors will do when they get to this section is they'll take you through the various views and then describe the weaknesses and the strengths of each, because there are weaknesses and strengths for all views concerning this specific text, because it's a little bit difficult to get at its meaning. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I decided not to. What I'm going to do, rather, is try to explain to you as best I can what I believe it means, which, by the way, and this is important, is different, is different than how I've understood it for many years. Okay? In fact, the first time my thinking on this text was challenged was in 2008. It was while we were still attending Foothill Bible Church before we had launched out and left there to plant Summit Bible Church. Foothill Bible Church is in Upland, they're our sending church. And David taught, was teaching through Romans, the pastor over there who's been here a couple times to fill in. And it was his teaching on the text that challenged me and challenged my, my thinking on it. And so his message has also influenced my understanding of this text. Okay? So I'm just kind of giving you that all up front. And hopefully this will make sense to you as we go through it. Let's read the text and then we'll, we'll get into it, okay? So let's begin in verse 14. Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual... But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, and I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin 
that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself served the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I served the law of sin. Okay. How many of you have at least uh, you've read through that text before? You've heard it. You've heard it. Most of you? Most of you? How many of you have heard someone teach through it? Okay. All right, let me tell you what I believed it to mean. Past tense. What I believed it to mean for many years, generally speaking. And maybe you also believe this. And just remember what I said. Good and godly men differ on the meaning of this text, okay? So if you walk out of here and you go, you didn't convince me at all. I still believe what I believe about that text. You know, my, my pastor from 10 years ago taught me that, and, and I, I think you're wrong, Jeremy. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay. Uh, good and godly men differ on this. But like I said, and it'll take you because I was challenged in 2008, and I just want you to know, I kind of put it on the back burner. I said, oh, that's interesting that that David said that. I've, I had not heard that before, and then I didn't deal with it. And now I had to deal with it because I'm preaching through Romans, and in the process, I realized now I've got to make a decision So about what, I, what I'm going to teach you so, and what I believe it means. So generally speaking, this is what I, I, I thought it me, meant. It's this, that the Apostle Paul here in, in these verses is simply describing his personal struggle or battle with sin. A struggle that exists because he has a desire to do good or right, but because of indwelling sin, he ends up doing the very thing that he doesn't want to do. And so consequently, he finds himself thoroughly frustrated and longing to be delivered from this problem. That's generally speaking, okay? This is, this is what I believe. And what you're normally also told is that Paul's experience is, is not unique to Paul alone, but it actually illustrates or pictures what all Christians go through in their life in their ongoing battle with sin. And I think, I'm going to take a guess, a stab in the dark, that maybe there are a lot of you here that, that have that position, because that's the general, generally speaking, that's the position I held and that's the general position that is, with a little bit of nuance, is what is taught, typically. Or something similar to it, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I've totally have abandoned that idea. I'm saying we're going to see it a little bit differently than that, I think. Let me tell you, now, and also, let me tell you this. Here's what always bothered me. All this time I've been taught that. And I've held to that. But here... But even so, something bothered me. I didn't feel absolutely comfortable with that position. And let me tell you why. The battle with sin, it is a battle with sin, by the way. I agree with that. It's right there in the text. It's clear. The battle with sin that Paul describes, according to verses 14 through 25, is one for Paul that continually ends in failure. In failure. Look at the text. In other words, when I say that, it's not a battle that Paul appears to ever win. Verse 15. 
Look at verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19. Look at the text. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What? In fact, the New American Standard Bible reads it this way, I practice the very evil that I do not want. I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now, beloved, I'm just going to tell you something. I'm going to go through this. That bothered me. So every time I read through Romans 7, or every time I heard someone teaching on it, and I, and I was taught a particular way about it, and I heard those parts of that message or that section, I cringed. I cringed. Because for a couple reasons, okay? Those, those descriptions of a battle with sin do not seem to match up with Paul's life as we, as we know it, as his Christian life, as we know about it from the New Testament. Let me just start there. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I do not think of a guy that keeps on doing the evil that he does not want. Would you think of Paul that way? So I'm... So that was confusing. The second thing is, if this is, if this is not only the Apostle Paul, but supposed to be a description of the normal Christian life, now I'm even more confused. Because, whoa, I just, whoo, went louder. But do you remember when we were, a couple years ago, we were in 1 John, and I went through, I went through 1 John, if you weren't here but it describes the authentic Christian. It describes what a Christian really is. Let me remind you just of a few things that the Apostle John says concerning the Christian. And let's see how this compares to Romans 7. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then 1 John 3, 9, listen to this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. There's no, there's no exceptions there. He says, oh, except a few. No, no one born of God, no one who has the Holy Spirit, no one who is a true, authentic Christian makes a practice of sinning. Why, John? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, again, every time I say this, and every time I read this passage, I always feel like I have to remind you that John is not saying that Christians don't sin. Uh, We all know that they do, right? And John knows that they do, and he explains that in the first chapter. In fact, he says, if if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. And then he says, we need to confess our sins, and then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But rather what he is saying here is that Sinning will not be a consistent way of life or the regular or habitual practice of the true Christian. It will not be. It doesn't mean you don't have sin. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with your sin. But it's just an ongoing way of life, unrepentant, just sinning away. Not, you know, you're just moving down that same course. That is not a Christian. It cannot be. Because there's a transformation that's taken place in them and God is 
taken responsibility for them, and he, will, he is going to bring about sanctification in them. So in light of that, what should I, in light of all that, what do I then make of Paul's experience here in Romans 7 that appears to be constant defeat when it comes to sin? And how then can I say that this text in Romans pictures or illustrates the normal Christian life? How can I say that? See, that's my concern, that maybe you had the same, maybe you have right now, the same understanding I've always had that, hey, yeah, you know, the evil that I don't want to do, that's just what I keep on doing. See, that's a little scary for me. Because then I think that allows you to, to kind of say, hey, there's just nothing I can do about this. This is just, this is just reality. I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep doing this terrible thing. Is that the Christian life? See what I'm, you see what I'm saying? If that's the Christian life, what's that? Is that the victory that we're promised through the Holy? I mean, it seems, it seems so opposite of everything else that we learn about the Christian life. So I'm going to suggest to you a different way to understand what Paul is saying, and I think it fits better within the context, all right? This is another way to understand what Paul is saying. First, it's important to remember that the main theme of chapter 7 is, what do you think it is? And when I say main theme, you can find it very easily because a word is used repeatedly over 20 times throughout the chapter. The law. The law. The Mosaic law. The law that God gave to the nation of Israel through his servant Moses. And it's important to keep that in mind as we come to the end of chapter 7. We haven't left the main theme yet. We are still dealing with, or Paul, better said, is still dealing with the subject of the law. And concerning the law, let me remind you of some things. Paul has already said in chapter 7, maybe you remember this, that the Christian has been released from the law. Released from the law. They have, he also said, died to the law. That is, they are no longer under its binding authority. No longer. The Christian is no longer under the binding authority of the law. Why? So that they might serve God, according to Paul, in a new way. That is, how's that? By way of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Not in the old way or the way of the written code, or the law of Moses. That's verse 6 of chapter 7. We have been released from the law so that we might serve God in a new way. How's that? By way of the Spirit, not in the old way, by way of the written code or the law, the external law of God, given to the nation of Israel through his servant Moses. Now, Paul doesn't talk about the Spirit or the Holy Spirit again until chapter 8. It doesn't come up again until chapter 8. He just makes this reference in in verse 6. How do we serve God? By way of the Spirit. And he'll talk more about that in chapter 8. But in chapter 7, he continues to address what I believe is the failure or inability of the law to deal with the problem of sin or deliver us from sin. That's what he's dealing with. So Paul also says in chapter 7, by the way, that the law actually arouses sinful passions. Verse 5. Do you remember that? What? Remember we talked about that. That sounds so strange, but no, that's the case. It arouses sinful passions. 
And after saying that, we know that's because of sin, but after saying that, Paul goes on to make it clear that there's nothing wrong with the law, because immediately someone might say, wait, wait, Paul, are you saying the law is evil or or something bad about the law? Because you just said it arouses sinful passions. No, Paul says, no, the law is holy and righteous and good. This is review. These are the things we've already covered. But nevertheless, the problem for humanity is sin exploits the law. Do you remember I talked about that? Exploits. It takes advantage of the law for its own selfish purposes. And it turns the law into an instrument that ultimately produces the very thing that it has prohibited. So that the law actually ends up, beloved, provoking or inciting more sin. That's verse 8 of chapter 7. So the bottom line is this. The law, because of sin, listen, this is the bottom line. The law, because of sin, cannot, even though the law is good and holy, but because of sin, it cannot advance the cause of holiness. The law is holy, but it can't make one holy, and it can't advance holiness. It can't because of indwelling sin. And yet, and yet, that is what many believed in Paul's day, and I think what some still believe today. Let me read this to you. It's not going to show up on the screen. I just want you to listen. It's a quote from a particular commentary, commentator, uh, basically a guy, a scholar, studies the Bible. He wrote this out. It was helpful to me. I want you to hear how he sees this section, okay? It's what I just said, but with a little more clarity. And then we'll, we'll get into this. He says this. Even those, he's talking about the readers now. So Paul's writing to a particular audience, so he's talking about those, that audience. Even those in the audience who were reading Paul's letter, or who would read Paul's letter in Paul's time, who had grasped, who had understood that they were not under the law, but under grace for justification. Okay, so what he's saying is, so they understand that. They understand that, that the law can't save them. They understand that they can't be justified by the law. the law. The law only condemns them. It must be faith in Christ. It must be strictly that way. Even though they understand that, not all of them grasped that they should also be not under law, but under spirit for sanctification. For sanctification. In other words, we know the law doesn't save, but we're still holding on to the idea that the law sanctifies. The law makes us more holy. And so he goes on to say, they had not yet come out of the Old Testament into the new or exchanged the old way of the written code for the new way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6. Hence, as a result then, what you see is a painful struggle and their humiliating defeat. They were relying on the law and had not yet come to terms with its weakness. And this is why I titled the message, The Weakness of the Law. In order to emphasize this, Paul knows that's what's going on, and in order to emphasize this, Paul identified with that stage of his own pilgrimage. All right, what does that mean? So I think what's going on is he's identifying with their struggle by taking them back to his struggle as a Christian initially with the law. This would be his struggle as a new believer. 
So he proclaims the impotence, the powerlessness of the law by dramatizing it in vivid terms of personal experience. Paul's personal experience. He describes, listen, he describes what happens to anybody who tries to live, and I'm going to add this, the Christian life, who tries to live the Christian life according to the law instead of the gospel, according to the flesh instead of the spirit. The resulting defeat is not the law's fault, for the law is good, although weak. The culprit is sin living in me, versus, or you. Verses 17 and 20, the power of indwelling sin, which the law is powerless to control. It's powerless. And it's not until Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and the verses following, where the Apostle Paul will bear witness to the indwelling spirit as alone, able to subdue or put under control indwelling sin. Just stay with me. Before that, however, he will specifically, we will refer specifically to the law as weakened. This is chapter 8, we're going to get there. Weakened by the sinful nature, and will declare that God himself has done what the sin-weakened law could not do. God has done it. He sent his son to die for our sins, in that the law's requirement might be fulfilled in us, provided that we live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. That's chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And now he says this final statement. Only when the gospel has replaced the law and the Holy Spirit, the written code, can defeat be replaced by victory. All right. You still with me? Kind of, kind of. Because this is hard. I mean, you know, I spend hours, right? You know, working through all this stuff and working through everything that's being said. And, and I walk away and I have to think about it, to think about it. And then I just, you know, boom, you have to have it here on Sunday morning and try to wrestle with it all. Just, that's okay. Wrestle with it. Just let it sit there for a second. Because I told you, I was hit up with this in 2008, and I kind of just said, oh, I don't want to deal with that. So I put it on the back burner, but I got stuck. You know, here I am having to deal with it now. But I knew that, at least for me, I had a problem with the way I'd always been taught that passage, and this was making more sense to me all of a sudden. And I think that, I think, beloved, this is a better way to understand that description, 14 through 25, that it is a picture of what happens when, instead of relying on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, a Christian relies on the law to make them holy. And the bottom line is, is it can't. Why? Because there's something wrong with the law? No. Because the law is made weak by indwelling sin. Beloved, listen, it is only the Spirit of God and our reliance upon and trust in Him that can give us consistent victory over our sin and progressively transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. It is only by the Spirit. See this? Okay. I'll get to that. So having said all that, I'm going I'm to work through the out, we'll get to the outline, we'll work through some of the details of the text, but this is why when I start with anybody, when we're talking about you know, counseling someone or something like that, the first thing I want to know is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? 
because there's nowhere else for me to go with you. If you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, sin owns you. It rules over you. And if I just heap law upon you, well, you got to do this and you got to do that, that's not going to help you at all. What we need to talk about is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that indwells in you. And we need to talk about you walking in the Spirit and how to do that. Because that's how you'll overcome sin in your life. That's the only way. And that is the way you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Is it same thing with marriage counseling. People want to come to me about marriage counseling, and of course, I, we t- I talk to them. But if they're not believers, that's where we have to start. I'm not going to give you a bunch of rules about marriage. That's not going to make a sinner any better. What they need and what I need in order to have a marriage that honors the Lord is the indwelling Spirit of God. And I'm going to have to, every moment of every day, rely on the Holy Spirit and the fruit that the Spirit produces in my life to have a marriage that honors the Lord. Does that, is that starting to make sense to you a little bit? A little bit. We'll try to, <clears throat> try to work through that. I'll try to give you some more. So we go, okay, so the, here's the outline. We're going to see two <clears throat> negative results, just two. Uh, you can look inside your bulletins. The outline's there. Two negative results of trying to be holy by law-keeping so that we might not rely on the law for our sanctification. It's that simple, okay? And the first one is confusion, and the second one is conflict. It's there in your bulletins, right? You see it? You can follow along. So, Here we go. This is simple. First, trying to be holy by law-keeping results in confusion. It results in confusion. See, I think this helps me, as as I move through the text, I think you'll see this helps me now understand what's really going on or what Paul's saying. This is not just Paul's struggle with sin, generally speaking. This is Paul's struggle when he is trying to be holy. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a a cheerleader for the law, a protector of the law. He lived the law 24-7. He comes to Christ. I think there was a transition. He He had to come out of the old, remove himself from the old covenant mentally, and move himself into the new covenant. Come out of the old age and into the new age. Come out from under the law, because he was freed from it, and come under grace. Realize that it was the Spirit of God that was going to do that sanctifying work in his life. But until he did that, there was incredible confusion and frustration and conflict. That's how I understand this text. Now, it's okay if you don't understand it that way or you still want to think about it. I get that. But the other one really bothered me because of the things I've already pointed out, the other way I understood it. So here we go. Confusion. Look back at the text with me. Look back in the Word of God. Look back at your Bibles. Verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Okay? Now again... If you guys normally rely on the screen, I think we've lost contact with the screen. It disappeared somewhere. So uh, that's why you should bring your Bible. 
just in case, because we can't trust technology. Can't rely on it. Remember one of those other things we can never rely on. Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual. Okay, so here we go. Again, Paul, and then he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I I hate. I don't understand my own actions. All right, so again, Paul draws attention to the fact that the, oh, right on, that the law of Moses is good by appealing to the common knowledge, all right, that it is spiritual. That's common knowledge. Listen, we know, we know the law is spiritual. We know it's good, meaning that his readers knew that it originated with God. It comes from God, and God is good. And so the law reflects God's goodness, his holiness, his justice, his mercy. The law reflects those things. The law shows us those things. We know the law is good. He's just saying it again in another way. We know the law is spiritual. We know it's common knowledge, but there's a problem. And it's not with the law, but it's with Paul. Because he's giving us his own, his personal experience here, I believe. Because, he says, he is of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, what is that supposed to mean? What is that supposed to mean? Well, let me put it this way. As Christians, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Is that right? Eric, is that right? That's right. Where do we learn that from? From you, Pastor. No. <laughs> yes, but no, that's not, I'm not the authority here. Where do we learn that from? Romans 6. This is a section here, 6 through 8. It's talking about our sanctification. How are we conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? How do we break free from, the, from that sin in our life? Okay, so we're no longer enslaved to sin. We have been set free from its tyrannical rule and reign, Romans 6. But unfortunately, we are not entirely free from it. Hello? We're free from its tyrannical rule and reign. But we are not entirely free from it, not yet anyway. Beloved, sin remains within us. It dwells within us, in our flesh. Uh, which is the part of us that remains unredeemed. That's the way you can understand the flesh. Not necessarily just our physical bodies, but it operates through our bodies. But it's the part of us that has yet to be redeemed. It is a part that will be redeemed when we're glorified. And then there will be no such thing as indwelling sin anymore. Okay? That day is coming, but that day has not yet arrived. And just because sin has been taken down from its throne through our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, as we learned in Romans 7, sin has clearly not gone away or surrendered. You need to think of it that way because that's what Paul does. He personifies sin. What does that mean? He makes sin out to be like a person. He takes on attributes of a person. Here, like the attributes of a king. Through Christ... The king of sin is taken down from his throne, okay? But he's still there. He's still still there. And he's not surrendered, but rather he fights within us to regain the power or rule that he once had over us. You hear me? Did you hear what I said? He's fighting. I say he because that's how Paul, he personifies it. So let me just give me the freedom to speak of sin in that way. He. Would she be better? No, I'll stick with he. 
now, as Christians, as a result of being born again, you know what's true? We have new hearts. Is that right? We have new affections. We have a, a new desire, a new desire to honor God or live a holy life. It's one of the ways that you know you're a believer. It's one of the ways. You don't have a new heart, new affections, no new desires. You just run the same course you've always ran. I'm sorry. You've never been regenerated. You've never been saved. You don't have the seed of God dwelling inside of you. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. That's not possible. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. But when the Christian, here we go, when the Christian tries to subdue or control their flesh with the law, the result is not what they would hope for. See, they're hoping for holiness, but if they look to the law for it, they don't get it. Rather, they get confusion. Confusion, because they end up doing exactly what they don't want to do. And the harder they try to subdue their sin through the law or law-keeping, the more sin seems to thrive. What? Why? Because the law, listen, because the law, while good and holy and spiritual... It still is entirely unable to deal with sin, the sin that dwells within us. And that, I believe, beloved, is the primary point that Paul is making in this section. I believe he's just, he's leaving. He wants to make sure there's just no more room left for going back to the law to make you holy. Don't do that. You, you best be relying on that Holy Spirit that indwells you. That's the only way anybody is going to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It won't be by law-keeping or your, your pursuit of it. Why? Because of indwelling sin. The only way to stamp out indwelling sin, the only way to stomp on it, put your foot on its neck, is not through you. You have no power or not through some external written code, but it is through the indwelling Holy Spirit that is within every Christian. This is why it's so terrible for a a person, a moralistic person, to attempt holiness, right? They don't have the Spirit. I'm talking about an unsaved person who's trying to be moral, right? Good luck. Oh, my goodness. That's not going to happen. All they're going to find is frustration upon frustration upon frustration. And yet, Christians do the same, sorry, do the same kind of things. Instead of relying on the Spirit, they turn to the law. All right. Let's keep looking. Secondly, trying to be holy by law-keeping, we got confusion. Second, conflict. Conflict, it results in conflict. And this is an inner conflict or battle or war that, guess what, cannot be won. Rather, it ends in defeat. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, hey, sometimes I end up doing the evil I don't want to do. He doesn't say that. That was the problem I had with the way I understood the text before. Because he says, that's how I am, man. I'm always doing the evil I don't want to do. What are you talking about? Yeah, when it comes to placing myself under the law and trying to be holy through the law, I end in defeat. That's what I think Paul is saying. Let's look at the text here. Verse 16 through 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, the fact that Paul, listen, 
The fact that Paul wills to do what the law demanded, this is the first verse, or um, verse 16, where he says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. The fact that Paul wills to do what the law demanded, even though he continually fell short of the law's requirements, shows that he agreed or acknowledged that the law was good. Okay, so he, listen, he's not, do you remember Paul was accused of speaking against the law? They were trying to, to kill him because of the things that he was teaching concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, Paul's a traitor, man. He speaks against the law. Listen, I'm not speaking against the law. That's what he has to keep defending himself. I agree that the law is good. There's no doubt about that. But there was a force at work in Paul. And it's the same force that's at work in every single one of us. You know what it's called? Sin. It is sin operating through the flesh, and guess what? Empowered by the law. It's empowered by the law. That's what Paul says. He said it now several times in Romans 7. And that made the holiness that Paul desired and struggled for an unobtainable prize. So despite Paul's best intentions, beloved, to keep the law early on in his Christian faith, because that's what I think is going on, That's the conclusion I'm drawing. Even though he desired and approved of that which is holy and righteous and good, the law, he repeatedly found himself in a battle that he kept losing. Why? Because the law was powerless to enable him to overcome indwelling sin. Now listen, here's the problem, because we, when Paul wrote a letter, when you write a letter, okay, when you, oh, we don't, we get emails now, we don't really get letters, but even so, you don't stop in the middle of your email and don't finish the conclusion, or you don't, you know, you don't stop in the first paragraph and then wait and don't read the next paragraph, right? You say, I'll come back next week and read the next paragraph. You don't do that, you read through the entire email. It's the same with letters, beloved, these New Testament letters. This is the kind of the problem I have, or every preacher has, because we don't have time to cover the whole thing. So I'm, we're in chapter 7, but Paul's going to get to chapter 8. It's all, you know, we broke it up in chapters, but it was one long letter. So Paul's going to talk about how he found freedom, how he was able to, con- to be conformed to Jesus Christ, how, how he was able to be made holy, and it's in and through the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, see? So he'll get there. But right now, he's at a stage where he's saying, listen, I want to I take away from you any hope or trust or confidence in the law before I give you what you should put your hope and confidence and trust in. That is the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. So now listen, Paul says this, beginning in verse 21, look back at the text. After he says all, he goes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, a lot of law, law, la 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 in there, but um, not all of it is all mosaic law. He's not, every time he uses it, typically when he uses it, yes, it means the mosaic law, but it can also just mean principle. It's a principle or a rule, okay? So that's how, when he says, I find it to be a law, the New American Standard Bible translates that word that time, principle. I find it to be a principle or a rule. It's like a rule that when I want to do right, which in the context is living a holy life through law-keeping, 
See, don't forget that. He's not saying when I want to do right, just generally, when I want to do right. That's not what he's saying. Remember the context. What's the context of Romans chapter 7? The law, the Mosaic law. So when I want to come under that, when I want to try to obtain holiness through law-keeping, Paul says, I find that evil or sin is right there fighting me every step of the way. And though I delight in the law of God in my inner being, what is that? What's the inner being? Well, that's referred to in 2 Corinthians 4.16. It's that redeemed part of the Christian the inner being, their redeemed part, the part of them which is being renewed or changed for the better, slowly, progressively, through the Spirit, through God, through their cooperation with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 4.16. That's that part. In that inner being, I, I delight, I see it's a good thing, but yet I see a war going on inside of me and the sin that dwells within me, within my flesh, keeps taking me captive. That's what I think Paul's saying. And so, listen, here we go. Watch how this flows. Caught up in this constant conflict in which there seems to be no relief, Paul, I believe, taking us back to his experience as a new believer was in trying to be holy through the law before he learned to rely, as I said, moment by moment on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which he'll talk about in chapter 8. He fails to have consistent victory over sin, so here's what he cries out, Romans 7, 24. What does he say? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, here's something else I have, I have misunderstood for a long time because I had to look at each word. I really, because, you know, trying to work this out. When you hear the word wretched, what do you think? Huh? Bad? Yeah, that's not the way Paul's using it. That's what I, I'm going to tell you, that's what I always, okay, so when I say, you're a bunch of wretches, I don't ever usually, no, I have said that before. Uh, I think out loud. No. Um, usually, you can, you can understand that word wretch or wretchedness. You can understand it as vile. It can lean that way towards wickedness. But I'm going to tell you, that's not the way, that's not the primary way to understand the word wretched. And it is not the Greek word here. In fact, I'll prove it to you, but let me tell you what it means. It means miserable. See, I, and th- this is where I think people, this is my big concern because I've had, I've had these same type of uh, thinking. You can leave it up there, please, just for a second. Thank you, John. Wretched man that I am. What a sinner I am! That's not what Paul is saying. That is not what Paul is saying. He's saying how miserable I am. How deeply afflicted I am. I'm I'm trying to live for God. But instead of doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to rely on this law. I know the law is good, but I'm trying to rely on the law, and I find in me this war. And I keep losing the very evil. I don't want to do that is what I keep on doing. I am miserable. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I'm a sinner. 
course he's a sinner, but he's not saying, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. That's, if he was even saying that, he's not. But if he was, does that line up with the Apostle Paul that you know? Do any of you know him? Do any of you know him? Not personally, obviously. Uh, but you can know him through the Scriptures. Does that sound like the Apostle Paul? What a wretched man that I am. No, what a miserable man that I am. Yes, when he was trying to be holy through law-keeping. By the way, if you just want to check this word, in James chapter 4, verse 9, the word is used in its verb form, so you can check me on this, and it says, James tells his uh, the, the sinners that won't repent, he says, be wretched. He says, be wretched. Is James, is James telling them to be awful sinners? It's the same word, just the verb form. Here it's an adjective. Paul says, how wretched a wretched man that I am, an adjective. There it's in verb form, be wretched. No, he's telling him, you be miserable about your condition and repent. That's what you need to be. You shouldn't be all happy-go-lucky because you refuse to repent. You should feel misery upon yourself. That's what he's saying. So same, same way. You get that? So, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the cry because of the conflict and confusion. And what is Paul's response? Here we go. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen, this response, he doesn't fully develop that. He does develop it in chapter 8. It's just, one, it's just, it's just the next verse. So he's a, see, and we're stopping here at the end of chapter 7, but he now de, he'll develop that phrase in chapter 8. And it's really, it's a, prepar, it's a preparatory It prepares the reader for what he's about to say, that what the law, weakened by the flesh, was powerless to do, save or sanctify the sinner, God has done through his Son and his Spirit. By the way, you don't get one without the other. You get the Son, and what does the Son say? I'm going to give you the Spirit. He who has the Son has the Spirit, who has the Spirit has the Son. And then in the last statement of chapter 7, this is what I see it, this is how I understand it, Paul summarizes all that he just said. He provides one last reminder concerning the impotence of the law to sanctify the Christian or to give the Christian victory over their sin or to transform them into the image of Jesus Christ. This is just one more, one more last summary statement. He's just going to say it again, the end of 25, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So how am I going to serve God in the oldness of the letter? No, but in the newness of the Spirit. That's the only way I'm going to be able to do it. So the bottom line is, as the Christian, as long... So here's the bottom line. We're going to wrap it up. As long as the Christian is not placing themselves under the full control of the Holy Spirit, not living by the Spirit, not walking according to the Spirit, which, again, we'll look at more in chapter 8, but rather they are trying to overcome their sin by law-keeping, by putting themselves under the law, by trying to serve God in the old way of the written code, they will fail miserably and continue to be plagued by frustration in their Christian walk. In his commentary on Romans, the guy I quoted earlier, his name is Stott, He refers to those who rely on the law in order to be holy. He refers to them as Old Testament Christians. Old Testament Christians, that's what he calls them, which doesn't even make sense. But he's saying that's what they're they're acting as. And then he says this. Listen, this is what he says. 
We need to keep a watch on ourselves and others, lest we ever slip back from the new order of things, the new age in Christ and grace and the Spirit, into the old. And then he describes what he means. To slip back from a person to a system. What do you think he means from a person? What person? Jesus Christ. To think somehow I'm going to be made right with God or become, become more holy through a system. It's never, it can't be that. It's not through a system. It's going to be through a person. From freedom to slavery. Slipping back from freedom into slavery. From the indwelling spirit to an external code, the law. From Christ to the law. It's, it is possible, is what he's saying, for us to slip back. More so possible for someone who's grown up under the law like a Jew, right? And Paul was a Jew, so he has to address that. But because of, I think, um, teaching that is not exact or out of line, we too could fall under that teaching, bad teaching, and try to, or even our own thinking, and place ourselves back under the law or try to do that. God's purpose is not that we should be Old Testament Christians, regenerate indeed, saved indeed, but living in slavery to the law and in bondage to indwelling sin. That's not the, his intent. It is rather that we should be New Testament Christians who, having died and risen with Christ, are living in the freedom of the indwelling spirit. You guys all confused? I mean, if I can at least, if I could have at least done this, maybe rattled you a little bit if you ever look to that passage for a reason that you can go on sinning. Because I don't think you, I don't think it's there. Like, hey, this is just the reality, you know. Look, Paul, he does the evil he doesn't want to do. And I, and I, and whether we may not say that out loud, we may have bought into that thinking. So, hey, if that's the Apostle Paul, what hope do I have? Well, I, I don't, as I just explained to you, I don't believe that's what's going on there. I think this is Paul's issue. He's, again, the law and sin. Yes, under those conditions, he failed. But when it comes to chapter 8, there is not failure. That doesn't mean we still don't struggle. But it's not just one failure after another. There is hope. There is victory. Christians actually, believe it or not, can overcome sin. Yeah, they can. It doesn't mean that they'll ever be sinless. Not on this side of heaven, no. But they can't. You can see it in the Christian's life. That's the Spirit of God at work in their life. But if they're constantly trying to, to I'm going to make myself more holy, I'm going to bring myself under the law, then they've taken themselves out of the new age, in a sense, and they're placing themselves back over here. And sin says, bring it, baby. Bring it over here. That's right. Come back over here. Oh, the law? <laughs> yeah. Booyah. And then indwelling sin works its work in you. And you find yourself, it says, thou shalt not covet. But now I've got coveting all over the place in my mind. What is going on? Let me, let me give you closing. Kind of just a, an example that you're, okay, in Galatians chapter 5, 
Mm-hmm. Let me read this to you real quick. Galatians 5.18, this is what it says. Um, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's one or the other. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So why would you keep putting yourself back under it? And then he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I was thinking, I was trying to think this through. I know I'm over time, but stick with me. Um, If, you know, when Jesus said, you know, what are the greatest commandments? He said, well, it's love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay? You could wrap up everything that God has in his law, in the Mosaic law, you could wrap it up under those two headings, love. Love for God and love for neighbor, right? Um, If you are walking by the Spirit, if you are being controlled by the Spirit, if you're yielding your life to the Spirit's prompting, Concerning holiness. We talk a lot about these weird promptings of the Spirit, which are not biblical. I'm talking about the prompting of holiness that goes on. Holiness. Why don't we focus on that one? Because that's the important one. And you're walking by the Spirit. You're yielding your life to the Spirit. You know what's going to happen? Love. Love. You know where it's coming from? From you? (laughs) No, it's not. No, because you know what? We have indwelling sin, and sin is self-love. That's the direction sin takes you, to love self. But this kind of love is sacrificial love, giving love, going the distance love, love that doesn't have to be returned, love that loves regardless of the person's lovability, that kind of love. And when the Spirit is at work in that person's life, let me ask you something. Are they going to hurt their neighbor? Are they going to wound their spouse? Are they going to gossip? Not if they're walking in the Spirit, because that's not loving. You see what I'm saying? But how did all those things happen? How did they conform to the image of Jesus Christ? How were they being made holy? How was that happening? Because of a law? Or because of the Spirit's work in their life? And the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in that person's life? See, if you're manifesting all these things through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I don't need to give you a law. And it is that work of the Spirit that is able to subdue or press down or keep down or put your foot on His throat, that sin, that monster that indwells every single one of us. It's the work of the Spirit, beloved. So if you don't have the Spirit, you're hopeless. And every believer in Jesus Christ has the Spirit. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not following Christ, if you don't know Him as your Savior, you have no power. You are powerless. You are hopeless. You will remain frustrated. That's one. And so you need to get saved. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Not tomorrow, but now. Second, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Don't turn away from Him. Don't turn to something else that won't work and only just give sin a greater opportunity in your life. But you got, like I have to, rely on that Holy Spirit moment by moment, hour by hour, minute by minute, yielding yourself to Him 
and seeing his work take place in your life. Then and only then, then and only then, will you have victory over sin. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would help our minds uh, make it right. You know, not make it right, but understand it rightly, more appropriately said. Uh, Father, we... We sometimes see through a, a window as if it's clouded. We need more clarity. Lord, help, help us through your spirit to really understand what Paul is saying here. We don't want to misunderstand it because if we do, then we're going to misapply it. And that will not result in good things. And Lord, even when I'm just thinking through this text, I, I recognize and acknowledge that good and godly men have different views. I understand all that. I respect that. But Father, as a pastor who cares uh, for these people, Especially concerning this text, I just think some of the ways that it's been understood, even the way I understood it, could be detrimental to their spiritual growth. So I hope that they understand it, and I believe I'm understanding it rightly, Lord, and I hope that they can see that and work through that in their own minds, that you'll bring conviction upon their own souls, that, Father, we will, we will fall down, recognize our helplessness, not try to turn back to the old way or to some external code, but rely daily on the Spirit. And here's what's interesting, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who penned your word. He authored your word through your representatives. It's the Holy Spirit who did that. So, Father, we need your word then. We need to rely on your word. We we need to have our minds transformed and renewed through your word. And so here we go again, saying over and over again, encouraging people to get into the Word because it's through the Word and the Spirit that indwells them that they begin to see change and transformation, not by going back to an external written code, but through the Spirit and the Word that He wrote to guide us, to help us, to lead us into holiness. Father, may that become important to us and may our reliance through today and just thinking about this message, may our reliance upon the Holy Spirit that you have so graciously given us increase even more. In Christ's name, amen.